You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Thank you, Ina. Good morning. How are you doing? Great. It's going to be a good morning. Uh, thank you so much for being here. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be in verse 14. We've been in verse 14 the last two weeks. This will be our final week in verse 14, and we're going to be in the verse that uh, Ina just read for us. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to see you. Thank you for those of you who are joining us uh, online. And then I know that you heard it when you came in, but uh, I hope that you'll join us this Thursday for one of our Christmas Eve services. They are at three or five or seven. Register for those uh, online, and we look forward to seeing you. Um, Let me start with the idea, the truth, the sentence that I hope we all take away this morning. Uh, It'll take us a bit to get there to unpack it, but if you're a a note taker of any kind, uh, this is kind of the summary statement for this morning, and here it is. You find true meaning in life in the true story that Christianity tells. And you don't find true meaning in in any other story because all the other stories surrounding us are are false stories. So it'll take us a bit to get back to this, but if I could offer something this morning that we would all hold on to, if if you do the thing where somebody asks you later today, hey, what was the sermon about? It would just delight my heart if you could say this sentence, that it was about you and I, that we find true meaning in the true story that Christianity tells. There are three things that our entire family will watch together on TV. So there are three shows, really, that, uh, and three only, that uh, the kids and Carrie and I will all sit down and watch together. And, and here they are, Dallas Cowboys games, which, never mind, it's almost Christmas, I'm not going to do that to us. The, the second is The Mandalorian, which is incredible. Anybody? Uh, I will not spoil anything, but the last... Anyway, we recently also started watching Shark Tank together, which I'm surprised, but my kids love it. Uh, And a few weeks ago, in the middle of Shark Tank, my son asked, Dad, what were the shows that your whole family watched together when you were growing up? And the first one that came to mind was a show called Home Improvement. Anybody? With Tim Allen and Al Borland. In fact, sometimes my kids will ask me, Dad, what time is it? And I will instinctively, without thinking, say, tool time. <laughs> and they will just stare at me so confused, like, gosh, you're such a dad, you know? Which feels good. Uh, the other is Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in West Philadelphia, born and raised. Uh, good luck getting that out of your head today. That's my gift to you. Uh, the other was Boy Meets World, where I learned everything that I had to unlearn about love later in life. <laughs> But as I thought about it, the show that we most frequently watched together as a family, all of my family together, was a show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Anybody? Uh, Eight or nine seasons. I think it started late 90s. And it was an improv show where actors were given these prompts and they would do these skits and they would make everything up on the spot, supposedly. I still 
am not sure, but there was a skit in particular that I, that I think about often when I think about talking about what we're going to talk about this morning. And there, the skit was one of the actors would stand in front of a large green screen. There's a huge green screen behind them. They couldn't see what's on the screen, but everyone in the audience could see what's on the screen, and the actors could see, the other actors could see what's on the screen, and then some sort of scene would pop up behind them that they were a part of. So in the background is this scene, and the idea is that they're standing in the foreground, and they are a part of that scene, and they're supposed to act and respond appropriately based on the scene that they belong to, even though they can't see it. And so everyone in the audience could see, and so the the guy had to use clues from the audience and from the actors to try and guess what the scene was. And so what made it funny was he initially had no idea, and so he never acted appropriately based on the scene that was behind him, right? So maybe he was in a battle or something like that, or maybe there was like a stampede of animals running straight at him, and that's the scene he's part of, and he doesn't know how to respond, and so he would maybe just sit down and like look around, not knowing what's going on. But as uh, he would get more clues, he would get a better idea, and it was in following those clues, he would begin to act in a way that was meaningful because of what was going on behind him. And his action in the foreground, it only made sense if it matched what was going on in the background. His action in the foreground only had meaning if it corresponded with the scene that he was a part of. And ultimately the skit ended when he was able to rightly guess what scene he belonged to. And I have often thought about that, partly like I do because I, I make sense of life through illustrations and metaphor, and that's just how God made me. But I've often thought that that is a bit like life on a broad scale. For all of us, we have that kind of experience over our whole of life. And here's what I mean. You are born into a world that you did not create, and we are born into places, and we are born around people, and born into cultures that already existed before us. There's a scene behind us, around us, that already existed before you made it into the world and you are a part of. And one of the questions of life is how are we to act and how are we to live? Maybe one of the the greatest questions of life is what am I to do with my life? But behind that question, you have to answer the first question of what do I believe is going on around me? What do I believe is the, the scene in which my life is playing out. In fact, uh, there's a New Testament scholar, his name's Klein Sindegross, he said it better. He said, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? Because life only, your life, my life, only has meaning if what we're doing in the foreground actually matches what's happening around us, what, if it matches what's happening in the background. It, it, it is uh, meaningless to be sitting if you should be running, if you will. And by story, here's what we mean. We mean not the circumstance that you're in right now, but we mean the, the sweeping story of the world. Maybe another way to talk about it is by talking about a worldview. But it's the story that we try to piece together through life's grand and great questions, right? Like, why are we here? How do you deal with death? Is there a God? Are we all that there is? How do I know right from wrong? Do I believe in right and wrong? How should I treat other people? How do I know if I'm living a good life? And in all of that, we are a bit like the actor asking, do I run, do I fight, do I sit? And to know that, I have to first know what's going on around me. And we all, if you will, look around us, try to find clues in life to understand what is true so that what we can believe with confidence that what we're doing, the decisions we're making, how we're living, has meaning, because it only has meaning if it corresponds with the story that marks 
the world. And every religion is going to offer answers to that question. And even non-religious people and non-religious systems are going to offer answers to that question. And Christianity has an answer to that question. And you and I, if we could have a conversation, we would all realize that we have at least come up with some answers to the story that we believe we're part of. If you've been here the past two weeks, you might be asking a fair question. What does any of this have to do with the verse that we're in in 1 Thessalonians 5.14? We've been talking about being in between the advents of Jesus. That's the season that we celebrate as Christians every year around this time. We as Christians are awaiting people because we're looking back at Jesus' first arrival, looking forward to his second arrival. And verse 14 of Thessalonians 5 has helped us ask about our life a specific question. How are we doing in the waiting? Especially at the end of a difficult year, have we grown idle? That was two weeks ago. Have we grown discouraged, right? Has, has the weight of life crushed us or disappointment crushed our spirit? That was last week. And if you want, if this is all new for you and you want more on how we got where we are, you can catch uh, the last two weeks on the podcast. But this morning, we're going to finish this short verse with the statement, help the weak. And to understand what this means and what kind of help is needed, we need to know who the weak are. Because... Uh, it's not the physically weak. It's not those who are maybe even uh, have become sick or something like that. The weak are those, according to the entire book, if you think about it in context, are those whose faith or desire for God has weakened, those whose belief has weakened. Or to say it based on what we've said so far, it's those whose confidence in the Christian story has weakened and their attraction to other stories has grown. Follow me here. Before the gospel of Jesus made it to Thessalonica, it was a city that already had answers to the sweeping questions of life. It was a city that already believed a story. They had already filled in what they believe is playing on the screen of life behind them. And it was a story uh, like they had already answered questions like, why are we here? And is there a God? And, And are we all there is? And how do I know right from wrong? And that story was the story of Rome. The story of Caesar, who was treated like a god and made claims like he was a god, and mixed into that was the story of Hellenism, the story of Greek gods and goddesses and Roman gods and goddesses and all of paganism. We taught them about how to worship and taught them about uh, what happens in the afterlife and what gave life meaning. And so their story or their city was already filled with these stories. So when Paul and his friends come to Thessalonica, they bring with them a different story. They challenge the stories that existed in that city, and they offered a competing story. They offered one that would replace it, the true story. So they go in, and essentially they're saying what you believe is going on in the background is actually wrong, and therefore the way that you're acting in the foreground is also wrong. You're running when you should be sitting, if you will. They announce that there is one true God who made you to worship him, and Jesus is the one true king who deserves ultimate allegiance, and they confront that existing story and offer a new one in its place, a true one in its place. This is what gets Paul and his friends run out of town for fear of their life. Listen to the charge against them in Acts 17. It says, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. He was a man from Thessalonica. And they are all, listen, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Do you hear it? They had come in and announced that there's another story that is the true story. There is another king, and he is the true king. And yes, Caesar is king over this moment, maybe, and over this piece of land. But there is a truer reality underneath that, a greater king, an eternal kingdom. And if you have to choose between allegiances to Caesar or to Jesus, choose the one who rules the everlasting kingdom, not the one who won't be around long. 
And the gods of the Thessalonians are false gods, so worship the one true God who made you and loves you and wants relationship with you and based on that love and that grace. And so see this, that what, what happens is, is what comes in is not just the announcement that, that, that Jesus died on the cross for sins and you can have eternity with him. Yes, that's true, but what comes into their city is a completely different story, a completely different way for understanding their life and where they came from and where they're going and how to make sense of death and, and how to know right from wrong, right? And so they come in and they say this, and, and the people who respond to that, the men and women who believe and who become Christians, they believe that this is the true story of the world and I'm no longer going to act in the foreground as if the stories in my city are the true stories. And so when Paul writes his letter, it's filled with reminders of the story that they believe and reminders of the story they rejected the one that they received and the one that they had left. Listen to this in chapter one. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You uh, believed once that you were born into a world that was made by the gods and controlled by the gods. You used to believe that. That's, that. That used to be how you defined life as it is playing out around you, but you left that story. You, you no longer to believe that to be true, and, and now you believe in the one true God. You used to believe that the person who was most in control of all things was Caesar, Rome's king. You left that story, and now you believe the one who is most in control of the world is Jesus, who ascended to the right hand of the Father. So hear me. Their conversion was a worldview conversion. Their conversion was a story conversion, leaving behind the claims of the stories that marked the city that they were part of and entering into the story of God, entering into the story of Jesus. But those other stories didn't go away. Uh, the pre-existing stories of their city were still very enticing for them, especially when Believing in Jesus cost many of them their lives, cost many of them their jobs. And so there's these other stories that are still vying for their love and their allegiance. So one of the other things that you see throughout the letter uh, is that Paul will acknowledge that some of their confidence in the story is weakening. He writes to those who are grieving, and he says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And it's maybe because some in their grief were believing about death and the afterlife, what the other stories said about death and the afterlife. He writes and says to some in chapter 4, don't participate in the sexual practices of the Gentiles who don't know God. That was part of goddess worship at Thessalonica. And some were returning to that story by offering their bodies in ways that those who believe in the story of Jesus know are filled with pain and break the heart of God. All of that to say. I said all that to say this. This is who he has in mind when he says in chapter 5, verse 14, help the weak. The weak are those who are maybe looking around in their city and are being drawn back to the false stories. The weak are those who are saying, you know what, maybe everyone else other than the Christians are right about the world. Maybe the pagans are right. Maybe the you know, the Romans are right, and their confidence in the story of Jesus and their participation in that story has weakened. Are you with me? Okay. At some point in your life, Christian, at some point in your life, someone shared with you the story of God. 
Maybe you grew up in it. Maybe it's all you ever knew because God and his blessing and favor over your life, you were born into a Christian gospel-centered home. But the Bible tells a story about our world and life. It's the story of Jesus, and you believed it. And you did not just give mental assent to certain propositions. You did not just give mental assent to a certain set of facts about God, but you said, I believe this to be the true story of the world and everything about my life is playing out in the story that God tells. This is the scene that I was born into. And part of becoming a Christian and living as a Christian is believing that God has defined that scene and taking him at his word for the story that he tells. And the story goes, just to make sure we're all on the same page, it goes something like this. In the beginning, God, he was all that there is and all that is came from him. He created, he is perfect glory and he is perfect beauty and he is perfect power and mostly he is love in its perfect and most complete form. And out of that love, he makes a world that is good like he is. And he makes a world that is glorious like he is. And he makes a world that is powerful and beautiful like he is. And he gives that world the vocation and the capacity to love and for love to be perfected and completed like him. And humanity rebelled against him. Humanity accepted his world but rejected his presence and they want to live in his world in their way and they want to try and secure glory for themselves apart from him and power and love and beauty all on their own without him. And here's how God responds to that rebellion. He responds to that rebellion with a promise of rescue. He promises in Genesis 3 a seed that will come and overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And all of the Old Testament looks forward to the fulfillment of that promise. And that rescuer is born to a virgin named Mary. It's what we especially celebrate this time of year. An angel comes to her and says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be be no end. Jesus is born to rescue and restore and recover God's world. Jesus was all of God's glory and all of God's beauty and all of God's power and mostly all of God's perfect love wrapped in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, lived and died on the cross for sins and rose again in defeat of sin and death. He ascended to heaven. He sent his spirit, empowered his people to live faithfully and justly and mercifully and missionally until he returns and one day he will come again bringing God's beauty and glory and power and love to bear on and overcome this broken world that we might forever live in our glorified state and join the heavenly song holy 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 is the Lord God almighty worthy are you O Lord to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever amen that is the true story of the world that is the story that is playing out behind you and around you. You were born in that story and your life has meaning and your life only has meaning as it matches the story that you believe to be true. So how we spend our time and how we spend our money and how we respond to conflict and how we treat our enemies and how we raise our kids and how we view our jobs and how we respond to death and how we make sense of pandemics, it all finds its answer. It all has meaning in as much as our action in the foreground corresponds to what we believe to be going on in the background. I imagine, friend, that you being here at a time when it's not terribly easy to come to church, I imagine you being here is a small example of this that you're present now, you're watching online, because hopefully this is part of what you do because of the story that you believe. But here's, goodness, here's what we need to know 
that just like in Thessalonica, this is not the most popular story in our city and in our suburbs. This is not the only story that vies for our attention or our affection. This, friends, is probably not the story that you hear most often in a given week. And so because of that, our hold on this story can grow weak. Our city, our suburbs are filled with other stories that demand of us that we pay attention to them. And they're filled with different answers to life's most important questions. And no, they're not about Caesar. And no, they're not about Greek gods. But they are false stories nonetheless. And they will give you answers to the question of how to find meaning in life. Cards on the table, my friends. One of the things about this year that has been most troubling is seeing how some of the cultural stories, the secular stories like consumerism and nationalism and individualism, how those stories are more deeply embedded in the lives of many Christians than the story of God is. And that has come out in the way many Christians have engaged on both sides of the election. That's come out in the way that Christians have engaged around the controversies with COVID and even just in seeing how when life has been disrupted, what we run to for comfort. Our cities and suburbs are filled with other stories and I wonder if we feel stronger toward them and weak toward the story that Christianity tells. The command in verse 15, verse 14, is to help the weak. That word help means to hold on to them, to wrap your arms around them and keep them standing lest they fall. I imagine those in Thessalonica read this verse, help the weak, hold on to the weak, and then they would go and they would find a brother or sister that was doubting or mourning, and they would wrap their arms around them and remind them that Jesus is the true king. They would go and they would hold up the true story in the midst of the false story. And so maybe that was going to someone and saying, look, I know our city says that Caesar is king, and I know you're losing confidence in Christianity, but Jesus is the only one that will last forever. Don't let your allegiance fade. And maybe they went up to someone and say, the stories of our city are that the the goddesses are to be worshipped. And I know that comes with a quick hit of satisfaction, but the story of Jesus is to taste and see that he and he alone is good. And that's the true and better story. They go up to them and they hold up the true story over and against the false. And they help them by telling them the story that is most worth believing in and believing it with them, even if they're weak. And so I want to spend the rest of our time, 10 minutes or so, doing the same. I want to offer help for us from God's word to hold up the true over and against the false. So back to my sentence that I hope you take with you. You find true meaning in the true story that Christianity tells. The stories in our city will tell us that meaning is found in other places and the kind of the overarching story in which we live in is the secular story. A story that says there is no God, or if there is, it's irrelevant to your daily life, right? It's, it's the secular story. And by secular, I don't mean the way I heard it growing up, like don't listen to secular music, instead listen to DC Talk, which was, was always a great decision. But we will uh, unpack this a little more, I hope, in January, February, but we live on the other side, you and I, live on the other side of some major cultural and ideological shifts that mark the Western world, where even for people who would say, yes, there is a God, we live in a society that no longer believes believes that life depends on or relies on that God in any meaningful way. And so we look in other places for meaning. What the secular story has done is it has lifted God out of life and it has put something, it, it offers something in God's place where really only God can stand. I'll give you an example. We do an advent calendar with our kids. We've done it for uh, seven, eight years or so and it's falling apart and so we wanted a new one and so I was looking online for a new advent calendar and I stumbled across an article that was explaining advent calendars it wasn't written by a Christian but it explained maybe the Christian history behind advent um, and kind of but then it said this 
but it doesn't have to just be for Christians. Let me read from the article. This was the case they were making. But the word Advent comes from the Latin word for arrival, Adventus, which means, which means non-Christians can celebrate it simply as a fun countdown to Christmas. In that respect, in that respect, it's also become a marketing opportunity for retailers. Who'd have thought, right? How nice for them. Mostly through Advent calendars, which have been around since the 19th century and have grown of late more creative. When, okay, what arrival are we talking about when we use Advent? The word Advent, what arrival are we talking about? Jesus. It's a distinctly Christian season. Jesus has advented. He has arrived and he will advent again. He will arrive again. The season of advent is not simply around the idea of arrival, but the historical claim that Jesus arrived in the past and that he will arrive again in the future. It's specific to a person. But if you don't believe that, like you can just make it about the arrival of Christmas Day. You don't have to miss out on all the, all the fun that the Christians are having, right? Just pay 40 bucks, get a creative advent calendar, and make it a countdown to Christmas. Now, look, I, I honestly don't care. It's fine if you're not a Christian and you have that. Just don't call it advent, right? Call it countdown to Christmas. But that is a microcosm. It's a, it's a summation of the impact that the secular story has had on Western society, meaning remove everything that's sacred. Remove anything that's transcendent. Remove anything that claims dependence on the divine or the supernatural and put something else in its place. So take out Jesus and just make it about Christmas Day. Remove the expectation for God and replace it with the expectation for the holiday. You take the word Advent, you remove Christ, and then you sell calendars. And Christians are not immune to it. Look, if we go back two weeks ago when we talked about non-practicing Christians, one way to understand that are people who are Christian in their religious affiliation but secular in where they find meaning in life or what actually occupies their day and their time. So lifted God out of their own life and put something in its place. The claim is, in the secular story, the claim is there's actually nothing on the screen behind you. There's nothing there. And so you fill it in however you want. You get to be the determiner of your own story. You get to be the one who defines the world that you believe that you were born into as long as you follow these certain rules and, 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 and follow the kind of ideologies. And so that's what we've done. So the stories in our cities, in our suburbs, they go like this. I'll, I'll move quickly, but I hope this sounds familiar because we try to talk about this with a little bit of regularity. Meaning, since it's self-constructed, because there is no God that you have to depend on, meaning is found in what you have. And that's the promise behind the story of consumerism. It's why we call certain things status symbols, right? Because we get our value from the value of what we can get, what we can buy, what we can acquire. Like I used to read the story about Israel worshiping the golden calf, and, and I just thought it was so silly. Like surely you know better. It's a gold statue. It's not a god. But the way our society responds to houses and cars and toys and whatever is new and bigger and better and brighter, it's the same thing. Inanimate objects that we ourselves made or we ourselves bought that we look to to make life worth living or that we look to to find life satisfying. It's idolatry and it's one of the stories that you find meaning in what you have and here's what consumerism will do. It lifts God out of the story and puts stuff in his place. 
Meaning is found in your personal freedoms or your personal expression. That's the promise behind the story of expressive individualism. Life is worth living. It's meaningful when there are no constraints on my life. If I could just be me without correction, if I could just be me without accountability, if my desires could simply be expressed and fulfilled without any resistance, that's where meaning is found. And it lifts God out of the place of my life and it puts me in his place, or at least my desires, at least it puts my emotional reasoning in God's place. Or meaning is found in my political allegiances and my belief that my version of the country is the hope for the world, that's nationalism. The far left and the far right right now are producing, maybe not producing, but what's being revealed is that they are becoming these political cults that speak about their ideas and their leaders the way religious people speak about their faith and their God. It's worship, it's weird, and it's idolatry. It lifts God out of the story, and it puts some political affiliation or national dream in his place. Meaning is found in what do I accomplish. Meaning is found in how I better myself and even the things around me, and that's the story of progressivism or optimism, where uh, I can evolve, I can better myself, and not only that, but I have all the resources in and of myself to do so. So it lifts God out of the story, and it puts a future me in his place. But not just a future me, a me that I can become all on my own without need of anyone or anything else. And these stories, we could go on and could easily say more about each one. These aren't true. These These are false stories. They have become, if we're not careful, part of our thinking and become how we evaluate even our own lives, right? But they offer, if we could be honest, They offer thin meaning to life that cannot carry the weight of the meaning we actually crave. If 2020 has shown us anything, it has exposed these kinds of pursuits as being so frail in what they offer and so fraught with empty promise. Things are societally as bad as they are in so many ways, not because of a virus that no one saw coming, but because of a society that doesn't know where to actually look for meaning and value in life. They don't lead to flourishing, not a flourishing society or flourishing people. And they just, here's what I care most that you hear. They just can't compare to the true meaning found in the true story of Christianity. Can I remind you of the meaning that you have found, my Christian friend, brother, sister? You have found in Jesus love that is not conditional or cheap. You were loved as you were and you are loved right now as you are because of the costly love of God in Jesus who because of his great love for us while we were sinners died for us. And that's a love that is not conditioned on your performance. It's a love that's not measured by how much you accumulate or what you have. It is a love that you have right now. You don't have to become someone to get that love. You are loved already. And really what is behind the search in all of these other stories is the desire to be loved as I am. It's the desire to be loved, unadorned and uncovered. I'd love to be completely known and loved at the same time. I'd love to be completely seen and completely received. But not believing that that kind of love actually exists makes us fashion through a false story, cheap love that I will settle for. Christian, you don't have to settle for cheap love. Gosh, one of the statements I'm convinced that God would have me repeat often as long as you and I get to do this together is the statement that you already have what you're looking for. Life with Jesus is not about searching harder for what's missing, but digging deeper into what's been given, into what you've already found. You have love that is not conditional. You have a purpose 
that is not filled with anxiety. You have a purpose that's not filled with worry. Let me put it like this. If the purpose of life is to make money and to get a lot of it, I will be anxious about the economy and my job performance, and and I will ride the highs and lows of my own success, all the while comparing critically the success of those around me. If the purpose of life is pleasing others and making sure as many people as possible like me, I will be a slave to praise, and I will be haunted by rejection. But if the purpose is to love God and to love others and become like Jesus. Yes, that's filled with difficulty, but beside it is the confidence in the peace of knowing God is working with me as one who loves me and is shaping me, has gone before me and he stands beside me. And in every circumstance, I can know whatever the nature of the circumstance, bad or good, it is one that he will use to bring about good in my life because he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, for whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers brothers. He will finish in you what he started. You have a purpose in life that is not fraught with anxiety or worry. And then you have hope that suffering can't take away. If my hope is in the future, if my hope is in any of the false stories in what I have in my freedom in the nation and my accomplishments, there is a kind of suffering, a kind of loss that you and I can't control. That hope, if it's in those things, will not survive But if my hope is in a person who himself already suffered and made it to the other side, I have a hope that is unshakable, a hope that suffering cannot take away. Do you know, friends, the only story that offers that? The only story that offers a love that is not conditional and a purpose that's not filled with anxiety and hope that suffering can't take away, it's the true story of Christianity. May we not grow tired of hearing it. It's the story that says in the beginning, God. He was all there was, and all that is came from him. He created, and he is perfect glory, and perfect power, and perfect beauty, and most of all, he is love in its perfect form, and out of that love, he makes a world that is good like he is, and beautiful like he is, and powerful like he is, and most of all, it has the capacity to love, and love in a way that's complete, and humanity rebelled against him. They wanted to accept his world, but reject his presence, and to live in his world in their way, and to try to secure glory, and power, and beauty, and love on their own apart from him, and he He responded in his grace to that rebellion with a plan of rescue. And he promised in Genesis 3 that a seed would come, a rescuer would come and would make everything right again, would overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And that rescuer, like we celebrate this time every year, was born to a virgin, Mary. The angel came and said, behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will call his name Jesus and he'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Jesus came, born to restore and recover and rescue God's world. He was all of God's glory and all of God's beauty and all of God's power and most of all, God's perfect love wrapped in flesh. The God-man, Emmanuel, God with us, lived, died on a cross for sins, rose again in victory over sin and death, and he ascended to heaven and he sent his spirit, empowered his people to live faithfully and justly and mercifully and missionally until he returns and one day he will come again bringing God's glory and power and beauty and most of all God's perfect love to bear and overcome this broken world that we might always and forever in glorified state join the heavenly song holy 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 is the Lord God almighty worthy are you O Lord to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever amen and you are not 
on the outside looking in of that story, but you have entered in through the blood of Jesus. Love that is not conditional, purpose that is not anxious, hope that suffering can't take away. You find true meaning in the true story that Christianity tells. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I just pray for our church, God. I just believe, and I can't see all that there is to see. I really can't. That's not a surprise to you or anyone else. But I just believe that if we are going to be faithful to the call that you've put in our lives as individuals, if we're going to be faithful to the call that you've put on our lives as a church, we are going to have to hold on to this story. We're going to have to hold on to what we know is true and reject over and again the false answers, the fake plots, Would you help us, God? I feel weak often. I feel like my uh, grip on these truths can so easily loosen. I, I feel like it's so much easier to measure the meaning of my life through the standards that the secular stories offer and to measure the meaning of my life by comparing my possessions or performance to the possessions and performances of other humans made in your image And I feel like God is so easy when the headlines are just this constant revolving door of chaos and polarization. So easy to believe that the role and job of the church is to respond to everyone or to pick a side. God, we are on your side. And we belong to your story. We love you. And we ask that you would help the weak this morning the one whose meaning in life feels very thin. I pray that you would strengthen it, that you would take the roots of their value that is in you and only in you, and you would send those so deep into the truth and in the gospel that they are strengthened this morning, God. We love you, and we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. So you know me pray. Amen.